It was way back in the year 1881. The author Mark Twain was working on publishing a new novel. It was something different for him. It was his first work of historical fiction, 1881. Incidentally, right about the time that C.T. Studd was committing his life for missions. We seem to be talking on that theme today. But Mark Twain was working on a book, and even though it was a new direction for him, it went on to be a bestseller and a classic. You know the title of this book, don't you? The Prince and the Pauper. You've heard of that. Even if you've never read the book, I think you're familiar with the general plot, the general idea. In this book, there's a character called Prince Edward. And Prince Edward decides that he's tired of the royal lifestyle. He'd like to try to live as a commoner. So he switches places with another fellow who happens to look like him. He puts on the clothes of a pauper. And the rest of the book follows the adventure of Prince Edward, who's trying to dress like a commoner and act like a commoner, even though he is, in fact, in reality, a royal heir. Now, in the book, the effects are comedic. It's funny. But let me tell you, my Christian friend, it is tragic when a blood-bought child of God turns his back on his heavenly inheritance and tries to live like a commoner. And here we find in our text for this evening, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the apostle and author, John, speaking on this very point, don't you know who you are? You're a child of the king. You're a royal heir. And you should act like it. My Christian friend, the inheritance that you have is just as real as any monarch, as any prince in this world today. But it requires a response on your part. In order to live up to the great calling that God has given you, you can choose to turn your back on it if you like. But don't ever forget who you really are. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We'll look at three verses of Scripture tonight, and we'll talk about three points, three headings. We'll talk about, first of all, a stunning revelation from 1 John chapter 3. Then second, we'll talk about a stirring reality. We're using these alliterated points to help our memory. A stunning revelation, a stirring reality, and then finally, a steadfast response. You see, there's a reality. You and I, Christian friends, we are sons of God. That demands a response on our part. And I'll tell you this, these first couple of points are explanation. The last point is application, based on what we're reading in the text, in the Word of God tonight. But pay close attention to the explanation. 
because the application won't make any sense unless you understand who you really are. First of all, number one, a stunning revelation we see here in this text. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the first part of this text says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Look at that expression, behold, what manner. Now in the original language of the New Testament, this is an expression, this is a word that is very difficult to translate actually and very rare. In all of the New Testament, it only appears five other times. It's an expression that means it is beyond description. It is something so amazing, it is beyond our comprehension. We don't have the thoughts to wrap our mind around it. We don't have the words to describe it. I'm not an expert in the original language, but reading up on this word, this word means something like this. It's out of this world. You can't even understand how amazing this love is that the Father hath bestowed upon us. As I said, it's used a couple of other times in the New Testament. Just to give you the background, just to set the stage for you, I'll mention a couple of those times. Do you recall a situation in which the disciples of Jesus were distressed in a boat on the Sea of Galilee? They were surrounded by a violent storm. They feared for their lives. They knew at any moment the boat could go down and take them with it. And do you remember when Jesus stepped up and said a word? He said, peace, be still. And the whole thing just quit in an instant. And the Gospels describe that the disciples went in that moment from being fearful of the storm to being fearful of Jesus. And what they said is this exact word, this exact phrase, they said, behold, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? They just couldn't wrap their mind around it. On another occasion, you know this story, a young girl named Mary was going about her daily routine and an angel appeared to her. Now that's shocking enough. But then the angel said to her, Hail thou that are highly favored. (laughs) And then he said, You're going to have a child. And then he said, Your child is going to be the long-awaited Messiah. Now how do you wrap your mind around a situation like that? And the Bible says she cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. It was out of this world. She had no thoughts to wrap her mind around it. She had no words to describe it. And here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, I'm afraid sometimes we like to water down the force of Scripture. We like to think it says something like, Behold, it's pretty nice, isn't it? That we should be called the sons of God. But John the Apostle puts pen to paper under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he says, I cannot even describe to you I don't even have the words to explain how awesome this is. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's a stunning revelation in the beginning of this text, moving quickly to the second point of explanation. If the thought is introduced in that way, then whatever is coming next is going to be pretty amazing. Behold, what manner of love. Well, what are you talking about, John? Here's a man who was a close friend to Jesus Christ, maybe the closest human friend that Jesus had, very close to him. You know this, the beloved apostle. And he says, let me tell you something. I can't even think how to describe this. 
I spent time with the Son of God. I talked to the Son of God. First John chapter 1, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him. The word of life. And let me tell you this, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I don't think it hits us like it ought to. We should be called the sons of God. And this is my second point. This is a stirring reality. Have you forgotten who you are, my Christian friend? A son of God? Do you recall the text of the hymn we just sang? His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God? How could that be? What Jesus is is what God is going to make me? The sons of God. And I'm quite sure when we read the phrase sons of God, we like to water that down as well. The full force of that does not hit us. Allow me a moment to talk to you just quickly about what I believe are a couple of erroneous ideas. What does it mean to be a son of God? I think out there in the world there's this idea that all of us are God's children. Why? Because God made us all. Maybe this is the thought that the Apostle Paul was reflecting when he preached in Athens and he said, we are his offspring. Well, God made us all, therefore we are his children. Is that what this text is talking about? No. The shocking truth, we are created by God. No, no. It's something far more than that. Well, that might be a common idea in the world, but I believe among Christian people in church, we've watered down the idea too. What does it mean to be a son of God, just created by God? Christian people sometimes think son of God just means you have a special relationship with God. Is that what it means? You're adopted into God's family. We look at a good text like Romans chapter 8 and we say it mentions adoption. That's what it means to be a son of God. I really belong to that family over there, but God has graciously welcomed me into his family. Now just for a moment, let me talk about this point. That idea of adoption is fine as far as it goes, but that's our modern American idea of adoption. That's not biblical adoption. I really belong in that family, but I've been welcomed lovingly into this family. That's okay in our modern society, but that's not New Testament adoption. Why don't we turn over to Romans chapter 8? We're not in a rush here. Let's look at a good scripture, Romans chapter 8. Verse 14, verse 15. And here's the Apostle Paul, a completely different human author, but he's writing on this point as well. Verse 14 of chapter 8 in Romans. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. You know, in the New Testament language, an adopted son was one who had reached the point of maturity and he was given all of the legal rights and privileges and authority of his father. The spirit of adoption is what we have according to the Bible text. Wow. So what does this mean? Back in 1 John chapter 3, that we should be called the sons of God. It doesn't really matter what my opinion is about the phrase or what the world's opinion is about the phrase. What really matters is what is the Bible saying that you and I are. 
I have a little trick question for you. I'm sorry. I'm a teacher here. We have to have some quizzes sometime. Let me just come down and talk to you. In the New Testament, there are two different words used for child or son. Some of you are familiar with this. You've studied on it a little bit. Two different words in the Greek New Testament. They're translated child or son in our English Bible. Now, they have a little bit different nuance, each one, a little bit different flavor. One of those words means a natural-born child. That is a, a biological descendant of a parent, a child who has, you might say, the nature, the DNA of his parent. It's just a general word for a child. On the other hand, there's a word in the New Testament that has a little bit different nuance. It emphasizes a little bit more a legal relationship. A son who is a legal heir. He has the rights, the privileges of the, the family line. His father is passed down to him. And, and that child could indeed be a, a natural-born biological son of the father. But it emphasizes, it's a different word. It emphasizes a little bit different meaning. Now here's my question for you. What we're trying to get at right now is, why is this such a shocking reality? that you and I should be called sons of God. Why is that so amazing? My question for you is, of those two words in the New Testament, which one of those is used to describe Christian people? Natural-born children, having the Father's nature, legal heirs, having the Father's authority, rights, and privileges. What do you think? I told you it's a trick question. Both. Both. As a matter of fact, in that text that we just read in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul uses both of those words just in that short text. You are this and you are that. In Jesus Christ, my Christian friend, as a son of God, you are made partaker of the divine nature of God and, in Jesus Christ, the authority of God. Do you see how stunning that is? Am I allowed to even say that? And I believe that's what the Apostle John is feeling when he writes out this text. Am I allowed? Am I allowed to even write this out? Wow. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, you, me, that we should be called the sons of God. No, my friend, you are not part of the family of Satan, welcomed into the family of God. Oh, no, you enter the family of God by a new birth, a regeneration. You are made a new man. Jesus said, you must be born again. And let me just pause at this point. I don't know absolutely everyone who's here tonight, but I just want to say this. Are you sure that you are a child of God? It may be. I, it may be there's someone here who is not absolutely certain about that point. Maybe someone here who's struggling and trying to please God, but you're not sure that you are a child of God. Did you work hard to get into your current family? Did you work hard to become a child of your parents physically? You did not. 
And in order to have a relationship with God, Jesus says, what you need is to be born again. You may ask, how does that work? Well, Jesus answered that question in John chapter 3. He said, we're all born once physically, but we need to be born a second time spiritually. We need a new birth spiritually. Well, what does that mean? How do I access that new birth spiritually? Jesus answered that question as well. He said, you need to believe on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You need to believe on Him. And my friend, if you are depending completely upon Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and a home in heaven and an eternal heavenly inheritance, you are a child of God. Now we're going to transition to the third, uh, final point, a steadfast response. These are fascinating thoughts to meditate on and to ponder, but... There's a response on our part. There's something we need to do about it. It's not just to behold it and think about it and do nothing. No, John continues on and he writes and he says, let me tell you what you ought to do about it. What should we do? You may ask, well, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. It's incredible. What God has given me, the heavenly inheritance that I have, what do I do? And John answers the question, and indeed the Holy Spirit is telling us right now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and again, verse 3. First of all, our steadfast response. Here's what you need to do based on verse 2. Embrace your inheritance. Embrace your inheritance. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, the verse says. Right now, you are a son of God. And in the future, we'll be just like Christ. But because you are in Christ as a son of God right now, you can be like him right now. The first response is embrace that inheritance. You might think, Stephen, are you kidding me? You're talking to a crowd of people who are here at a church service, a worship service on Monday night. Do you really think some people here are trying to turn their back on their inheritance? Do you really think there's anybody in this room who wants to turn their back on God their Father and, and not be a son of God? No, I don't. But I do believe there are some here who would like to have it two ways. I believe there are some here who enjoy their relationship with God but also are comfortable in the world. I believe there are some here who enjoy knowing that they're saved eternally, and they enjoy knowing that they can go to God in prayer and seek answers to prayer and blessings from Him, but they also want the world's entertainments and amusements. And they are not prepared to deal with their sin. And there are some of us here who are sons of God, but don't want to act like it. Embrace your inheritance. It does not work. If you want to have one foot in the world and one foot in church, half of your heart in the world and half of your heart focused on God, it doesn't work. It will not work. You need to make a choice. I don't know if any of you here have heard about Prince Harry. This gentleman has been in the news recently mostly because of his ah, very acrimonious relationship with his royal family. You see, the man is the son of a king. Literally. Okay, you all with me on this illustration? But he's in the news because he's made a very definite break with his royal family. In fact, I heard that there's a book that's going to be published tomorrow that he wrote 
apparently outlining a lot of the grievances that he has with his royal family and his royal lifestyle. Now, in my notes, I have some quotes from uh, news media years ago, years ago, where Prince Harry says, I would, I, I would like to leave the royal lifestyle. I would like to lead a normal life. I would like to have a regular job and earn a regular wage like regular people. And he went ahead and did it. A couple of years ago, he did exactly that. He left his homeland behind. He left his family behind. Moved to the United States, married an American girl. That's his choice, you see. He's the son of a king. But he doesn't have to act like it. He doesn't have to live like it. But here's where it gets interesting. Two months ago, <clears throat> the newly crowned King Charles took away some of the royal rights and privileges of his son, Harry. He said he's moved away, he's left the country, he's left the family, therefore he won't be able to do this or this or this or this. And the response that I have quoted up here, Prince Harry said, I am, quote, deeply offended. I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't know the man. I've never met him. I'm sure he's faced some challenges. But listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Christian friend, you can't have it both ways. I want to be a son of God and also enjoy my fleshly habits. I want to be a son of God and also indulge in sin. I like to be a son of God and also comfortable in the world. It does not work. And Christian people trying to lead a dual lifestyle and then going to God in prayer and asking for help and blessings, and it seems that God does not answer, and they are deeply offended. Embrace your inheritance. Could be there's somebody here tonight and you know that God is calling you to something that you don't really want to do. And I don't have to convince you of the call. God is already speaking to you and you just don't want to respond. It seems beyond you. It doesn't seem interesting to you. It seems like it's something you can't do on your own. I tried to tell you about this uh, this morning, students. When God calls you, he doesn't call you to do things you're comfortable with. He doesn't call you to do things that you can manage without him. If you think God's called you to do something that you can handle on your own, you're, you're misguided. You've misinterpreted something. You've either misinterpreted the call of God or you've uh, overestimated your abilities, one or the other. And it could be in here right now, God speaking to somebody saying, you know I'm calling you to take another step and you don't want to do it. You've got to make a choice. Tonight, which world are you going to live in? Right now, verse 2, we are the sons of God. We should act like it. And that brings us to verse 3. And our final observation and our final application. 
Our steadfast response involves a couple of things. According to this text, number one, we need to embrace that inheritance. And number two, we need to purify ourselves. Verse 3, every man that hath this hope in him. What hope? The assurance that you are a son of God. Any Christian people here tonight? Do you know, based on what the Bible says, that you're a Christian? Then you are the son of God. And this text says every single one of us that has that assurance in us should do this. Purify himself. I want to just talk about this word for a minute. To purify yourself, to purify anything, does not mean to change it into what it is not. Now I'm saying that because some good-hearted Christian people read the book of 1 John, and I believe they take the text in 1 John to imply that we need to act like Christians in order to be sure that we are Christians. No, I believe what is emphasized here is because we are Christians, we can act like Christ. Because we are sons of God, we can act like it. Because He is pure, we can be pure. Look at this. I've got this water. If I want to purify this water, I assume it's been purified. If I want to purify water, what am I going to do to this water? Am I going to change it into something else that it is not? No. If I'm purifying anything, if I'm purifying water, I assume that it's already water, but it has impurities in it. The impurities need to be taken out, you see. Everything in your life that is not the Son of God needs to be taken out, you see. Even as He, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is pure, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to hold your life up to the light of Jesus Christ and see if there's anything in there that does not look like the Son of God. Because you are a son of God. Anything in there that is not the son of God, take it out. I find it interesting. I haven't studied deeply on this, but I find it interesting. The phrase in the verse says, purify himself. It doesn't say, let God purify you. It says, every man purifieth himself. And my thought on that is, God doesn't need to do it because he, he didn't put the impurities in there. When you were born again, you were born pure son of God. If there's impurities in there, you put them in. So you need to take them out. And that, my friend, is what we need to do tonight. It's not complicated. But it's humbling. As you hold your life up to the light of Jesus Christ and you say, Oh, that does not look like the son of God. It's got to go. Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, what do you do with it? Hold it away from you, ignore it for a minute. No, no, no. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. And a lot of Christian people are not willing to take steps to purify themselves. <clears throat> Students, are you willing in this semester? As we go through the semester, you know, we'll have a series of chapel services. We'll enjoy good preaching at the Victory Conference. Are you all willing to commit whatever God shows you that shouldn't be there, you will take it out? I'm only asking, because that's what the Bible says right here. Purifieth himself. Are you willing to make that commitment? Now, I don't know. I don't know what the impurity might be tonight, later on. I don't know. I'm just asking you, would you be willing to commit whatever God shows you, you're going to take it out? Even as he is pure. Do you think Jesus Christ is the pure Son of God. 
only that. Remember the idea of purity is primarily singleness, not so much absence of dirt, absence of defilement, but singleness. Jesus Christ is only that, the Son of God. And we need to use Him as our pattern. Even as He is pure, we need to be pure. One other thought here, before we draw to a conclusion, I overheard this conversation, and it illustrates the point very well. You might have heard this illustration before. I've, I've, I've literally overheard this. I overheard a mother speaking to her son. He had done something wrong. He had misbehaved. She said, son, we don't do that. She said, she gave the family name. We don't do that. Uh, Johnson's, let's say. She says, son, don't do that. Johnson's don't do that. Okay. Well, she's saying to her son, now you've messed up. You're no longer part of the family. No, she's saying because you're part of the family, you don't act like that. And right here in chapter 3, verse 3, God is telling us, because you are a son of God, act like it. We have a wonderful spiritual inheritance, a heavenly spiritual inheritance, just as real as any royalty in the world today. But you and I need to act on it in order to appropriate it, in order to enjoy it. We talked a little bit earlier about the fictional character Prince Edward. He wanted to put on the rags of a pauper and act like a commoner. And then he was shocked and surprised when people didn't treat him like a prince anymore. That was a fictional story. But back at the beginning of the 20th century, there was an actual king, King Edward. He had been a prince. His father died. He was thrust into the position of king. But he didn't want to be there. The problem was he had gotten himself involved with a woman. He really wanted to be able to marry this woman. Now, I don't know for sure, but what I've read seems to indicate that he was hoping he could do both. He was just fine with continuing on with all the privileges of royalty. He was just fine with continuing on being king as long as he could marry this, incidentally, American commoner that he had gotten involved with. But British law said, no, you can't have it both ways. You're going to have to choose one or the other. Do you want to be king or do you want to be a commoner? In his case, back in 1936, December 10th, 1936, he made his decision. He gave up royalty. He gave up his inheritance and died a commoner. Now, you and I have a choice. And tonight, the invitation is simple. It's clear. Make a choice. <clears throat> You're the son of God. Are you going to choose to live like it? You have a royal inheritance. Will you choose to embrace it? You have Jesus Christ as your great example. Will you follow him? <clears throat>